Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Today, we're going to be talking about uh, a sort of addendum to last week's uh, anniversary segment. We'll be talking about some of the things that I didn't get to cover last week. Then we'll talk about how Stoltenberg, Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, admits that NATO expansion caused the war in Ukraine. And then we have some statements from high-level Russian officials signaling the coming Russian offensive. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid fire news. So we have Senator Dianne Feinstein dying at age 90, the longest serving congressman, I believe, or at the very least, the longest serving Californian senator. So she's gone. And apparently the way this works for California is that the governor gets to appoint the new senator. So we'll see who the appointee ends up being. We have the UK considering sending military advisors to Ukraine, uh, sort of a, a repeat of Vietnam, except it'll be a lot faster than Vietnam, and that'll be a massive L on their part if they do it. That and they'll be sending those people over there to die, because once they go into Ukraine and the Russian offensive begins, and we'll talk more about that later, they go in there, they're going to get blown up. Uh, I mean, at this point, the risks are well known because Russians have said we're going to take out the decision making centers. So if you're going to send advisors into Ukraine, well, that's a decision making center. They're going to get blown up. Now, it might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be next week. But it'll happen, just like how they blew up those depleted uranium uh, shells that they sent Ukraine, that the Britons sent the UK. Uh, not not the British of the UK, that the UK sent to Ukraine. There we go. And it was sudden. Nobody knew until after the Russians had blown it up. Then it was a problem. Something similar is going to happen. Just like how the Russians have just been absolutely gobsmacking those mercenaries who are either gone or dead in Ukraine. Now, do you remember how when the war first began, you had all those volunteers signing up? They're either gone or they're dead. Like That's what's going to happen to these advisors if Britain follows through on this idea for their sake let's hope that they don't uh, we have a mass exodus from nagorno-karabakh we talked about the the strange way in which the issue was resolved at least for the time being uh, and i say resolved in quotations because really what happened was president prashinian of armenia recognized azerbaijani sovereignty over nagorno-karabakh so really what happened because he did that was that Nagorno-Karabakh military had the green light to just move in and take the territory and Nagorno-Karabakh government, uh, not Nagorno-Karabakh, the Azerbaijani government issued uh, basically an ultimatum slash uh, plebiscite, if you will, to the people living in Nagorno-Karabakh. You can either stay, become Azerbaijani citizens and you know, follow our rules and laws, or you can leave. And as of now, it is reported 
that nearly 100,000 have fled. Uh, and this is coming from a territory populated mainly by Armenians that only had around 120,000 people to begin with. Massive depopulation of this historic Armenian land. And for what? Yeah, that, that's the question many in Armenia are asking now. For what? You've given up historic Armenian land, caused a mass exodus of 100,000 plus people. And what did you get in exchange for that? The promise of some, uh, uh, the word on the street is that he wants to pivot to the West. Well, how are you going to do that? <laughs> I, I swear, look, looking at a map really does solve a lot of these geostrategic problems. Uh, but for whatever reason, people just don't look at a map. They just don't look at it. How are you going to be, how are you going to get westernized and get all this money and investment from, and integration from with the West? Money and investment is one thing. How are you going to get this integration with the West that he, that President Pashinyan supposedly wants when you are between, you're between Turkey, Russia, and Armenia, uh, not Armenia, and Azerbaijan. So how are you going to integrate? What are you integrating with exactly? What, the Romanians across on the other side of the Black Sea? Like, looking at a map really does solve a lot of problems. Eh, but people just don't do it. So now, you've given up this historic land. You've caused a mass exodus of 100,000 people. You're going to have to find a way to resettle them in Armenia proper. And you've pissed off your ally Russia because they you were supposed to be in, in negotiations with Azerbaijan as a part of the peace settlement that the Russians are a part of that they were mediating and you completely undermined the position and enabled this to happen at the same time that you're supposedly I can't say for certain you're supposedly turning away from Russia try to reduce dependencies on Russia and go for the West that's a terrible move not just because uh, it, look at a map, but because economically you are dependent on Russia and geostrategically you're surrounded by countries who don't really like the West. So what sense does it make to make your of yourself the opposition to all the major powers of the region? It doesn't make any sense. And I don't think this is resolved because those people are going to want to go back eventually. And at some point, someone's going to come along and say, this is historic Armenian land. We want it back. And the Armenian, the, the Azerbaijanis aren't going to get it back. They're going to say, no, your president said that this is ours. So you take it up with him. I don't think that this is over completely, but it's over for now. And we'll see what the consequences of this are as things move on. Uh, this exodus is just happens to be one of them. And we'll see... We'll, we'll see what comes from this. This is, I don't think we've seen the end of the consequences of this action yet. I'll say that much. We have uh, the Indian Foreign Minister Jaishankar saying that there's a climate of violence, in, and he's referring to Canada because he was discussing the fallout from Canada essentially outing the Indian government for an assassination of Sikh separatists uh, who were living in Canada 
and that the again the Indian government assassinated extrajudicial assassination, and Canada basically put them on blast for doing that, and now it's caused a bit of a diplomatic fallout between the two countries. Now you could say that that's the right thing to do. Uh, no one appreciates assassinations being carried out on their territory, but now you open the door to the same thing happening to you because India isn't the only one who carries out these sorts of actions. We carry them out all the time. Canada probably carries these out. So now, instead of keeping it on the down low and resolving it diplomat to diplomat, you know, out of the public view, now, when you commit the assassination, they're going to put you on blast and ruin your public image. And then it's going to be a tit for tat until people learn how to keep their mouths shut. <laughs> and, but, but yeah, I, I understand where the Canadians would come from on this because, again, sovereignty. No one wants foreign countries and foreign agents assassinating people within your country because what if that was a Canadian citizen? Now, they weren't Canadian citizens this time, but what if they were? You don't, you don't even want that as a possibility. You don't want that as a prospect. Sure, it's realistic that it's uh, always going to be a prospect, but you don't want it. It doesn't mean you have to consent to that. It's, sovereignty is about the integrity of your ability to run and govern over your land. People carrying out assassinations in your land sort of undermines that authority, that legitimacy that you have. But this has been caused major fallout between Canada and India. And it seems to be a continuing downward spiral because no, one, no one's apologizing. So what happens now? Well, the West, the collective West, probably comes in and backs Canada in this issue. And India goes all in on the bricks. That's probably how this is going to go. And all that, all these attempts at trying to trying to make this anti-China coalition with India as the 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 sort of major partner in the region, the counterbalance to China, all that's going out the window, and this is just fueled the fire. That's what seems to be happening here. Uh, and while we're on the topic of Canada as well, something ridiculous happened with Canada because their parliament gave a standing ovation to a Ukrainian war veteran when Zelensky came through and they they brought this guy in to honor him while Zelensky was there. Ukrainian war hero. Well, hero, quotation mark. We'll just say veteran. 90 years old. But here's the catch. If the the 90-year-old didn't give it away, (laughs) he is... A former Waffen SS member from the Galicia Division, who fought Russia in Ukraine and the Balkans, carried out atrocities against Poles, <laughs> uh, Russians, Slavs, Jews. Like, yeah, this is the guy you're going to give a standing ovation to? And they gave him a standing ovation twice. Not once, but twice. You can't make this stuff up. Like, at first, I'm like, uh, okay, that's strange. I'm going to leave it alone. But then the more, the more the digging started to happen as my sources started digging into this, it's like, well, okay, how did he get through your vetting system unless you wanted him to get through? Because you don't just walk, waltz into the parliament and, yeah, I'm going to get honored today 
I feel like being honored today. You're going to honor me? Okay, I'm going to be honored. You don't just do that. You get vetted. And even if there were more lax in their vetting process because, oh, it's Ukraine. Oh, his excellency. Oh, my God. Oh, Zelensky's in town. Even with all that, there's no way you, you just you just gloss over the fact he's, he's a Waffen SS member. He's 90 years old. What war do you think he fought? <laughs> well, let's trace it back. It's 2023, okay. World War II ended in 1945, so that's about that's about 80-78 years, okay. So 90 minus 78, he would have been about 18. 18. Oh, wow. That guy was a boy, like an actual boy, when he was just out there slaughtering people. Wasn't he? Because, uh, my goodness, they have a real, not just Nazi, but damn near a Hitler youth. They honored someone who may as well have been a Hitler youth. He was, you know what, let, let, me, let me just check my math here. Let me just check my math here. Ding, 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 ding. Alrighty. So if we go 2023... 20, Minus 90, the age of that guy, he was born in 1933. So if he's born in 1933, uh, we add, he's six years old when the war breaks out. He's six years old when the war breaks out. All right. He's eight when America and the Soviet Union, when America gets attacked and the Soviet Union gets invaded, he's He's now eight years old. Well, actually, he's about five when the Soviet Union gets invaded. He's eight years old now, in, in 1941. So, eight years old. Oh, my God. And then 1944. We'll just say 44, so we'll add three years. Jesus. This guy was an actual kid. An actual kid fighting in the Waffen SS. That's insane. That's insane. They honored a Hitler youth. <laughs> now I don't I don't think he actually was the Hitler youth, but a child soldier fighting for the uh, Oh my goodness. Oh my god. Wait. Do I just have the numbers wrong? Cuz it seems pretty unbelievable here. Maybe maybe I got the 90 wrong. He's actually 80 years old. That that feels like it would make more sense. But either way, how do you just let that slip? How do you what you, you just you just forgot? Oh oh whoops we oops we let Steiner in. Oops we we let Rumstein in. Oh no. We we accidentally honored fucking rommel it's like that doesn't just happen that doesn't just happen you did that on purpose and they know what they did they know what they did and and they're not apologizing for it either they oh my goodness it's like oh my 
how? How do you just how do you just let that let that slip? Oh, it says he's ninety eight years old. Okay, so if he's ninety eight years old, so twenty no twenty twenty three minus ninety eight. Okay, born in nineteen twenty five. There, there we go. What I say? He was eighty years old. Okay, so I accidentally made him young, made him a little younger than he was. He needed to be. So that guy's almost a hundred years old, born in nineteen twenty five. Plus ten. Uh, this guy, minus two. This guy's eight years old. He's eight years old when Hitler comes to power in Germany. Nineteen thirty-three. He's eight. This guy is eight years old. Plus six. He's fifteen years old when the war breaks out. In in Europe, he's fifteen in nineteen thirty-nine. So then, if we just jump forward to say nineteen forty-three. Operation Barbarossa. Operation Barbarossa is in its at, at the high point. So if he's 15 years old in 1939, we'll just add four to that. He's 19 years old, fighting on the Eastern Front in the Galicia Division. Wow. Wow. Talk about an L. Talk about showing your ass. Because this entire time, mind you, we've been just gaslit uh, day in and day out about how there are no Nazis in Ukraine, how Ukraine doesn't have a Nazi problem. It's, it's not a problem. It doesn't exist. Uh, it's Russian propaganda. Don't don't listen to that. There's Ukraine. It's only a minority. They, they don't have the majority in the Ukrainian parliament. Nazis are only uh, X percent of the Ukraine's population. All this, all this shit. And here they go. Out of all the people in the Ukrainian military that you could have honored, you choose the guy who was only young enough to fight in the World War II. There's, look, this 98-year-old guy is not fighting on the front lines in Bakhmut, okay? Like, come on now. Come on now. What war do you think he fought in? What war? I mean, like... He would have had to have been what? Uh, if he's nineteen, if he's nineteen years old in 1943, he's 21 when the when the war ends. So what? He you think he, he fought in Vietnam or something? And when he was in his 40s, in his late 30s and 40s? Like, come on now, what war do you think this 98 year old veteran fought in? Like, oh my goodness. There's no Nazis in Ukraine, but out of all the soldiers we could have honored, we picked the one guy who isn't just a Nazi, but fought it with those Nazis, the real Nazis, in, in the big war, 1940s. Hitler is his master. This is the guy. Like. They want to normalize Nazism. That's what they want. They want to normalize Nazism. That's because there's you look. There's the saying: you don't don't attribute to malice what you can attribute to incompetence. 
but there's no way you're that incompetent that out of all the people you could have grabbed, because there are plenty of war veterans from Ukraine, they have a really high fatality rate, but there are still plenty of actual living Ukrainian war veterans who fought in this war. There are plenty of them. There's no way you just gloss over a million men and go grab the one Nazi, on top of grabbing one that who is a Nazi. Out of all the Ukrainians you could have picked, you grabbed the Nazi who served under the Nazis in the 1940s during World War II. There's no way you just accidentally do that. That's not an accidental thing. That is malice. They want to normalize Nazism. They want to normalize Nazism. Explain another scenario that would make sense other than they want to normalize Nazism. They're giving billions of dollars to Ukraine run by Nazis because we installed them when we overthrew their government. Back in 2014, we installed Nazis to power. They let they have Nazi brigades, Nazi divisions that just ran loose in eastern parts of Ukraine for eight years. The Azov Battalion, Stefan, Stefan Bandera is their national hero, a literal Nazi. Like, they wear the patch, the black sun. They fly SS Thunderbolts like they were stars and stripes. Like, at a certain point, we just, we're kidding ourselves by giving the benefit of the doubt to our governments. At a certain point, we're kidding ourselves by saying, oh, it's an accident. Or, oh, they, they, just, they just didn't know. No, they know. They know exactly who it is that we are supporting. They've told us who it is that we're supporting for years. Because for the eight years leading up to this war, they had no they had no problem saying that Ukraine has a Nazi problem. It was only after Russia invaded that suddenly you weren't allowed to say it. And now here they are honoring a literal Nazi from who fought under Nazi Germany. That's not a mistake. They're trying to normalize Nazism. That's what they're trying to do. But uh, they're failing. So <laughs> we'll just watch the backlash of that unfold with glee. Uh, in other news, uh, oh, and by the way, they're trying. They're already like like clockwork. They're trying to blame it on Russian misinformation and to cover up for their blatant fuck up instead of you know apologizing and saying we got it wrong. Probably because they know that there's no way they're going to run that one pop by the Canadian people. Like, yeah. You're dumb, but you're not that dumb. Like, come on now. But yeah, that's a fuck up. Uh, and Russia, in other news, is going to increase its military spending by 70% for 2024, which also hints at what I think is coming, a major Russian offensive. And again, we'll get into that later on in the episode. Because nearly doubling your military budget when you're doing pretty well with the money you're spending already when you're sitting on the defensive, well, you don't need the money if you're going to continue defending. You need that money if you're going to be doing things other than what you're doing right now. And doubling the military budget, considering what that military budget has gotten you, to double that budget means you're going to be doing a lot of things differently than what you're doing right now. And I think that hints at offensive operations. 
we'll get into that later on the episode. We have General Milley, Mark Milley, retiring. Oh, good riddance. Get that guy out of here. What a failure. <laughs> Afghanistan, and Ukraine, uh, and just blatantly lying to us about Ukraine the entire way. Oh, they, they've lost strategically, militarily, uh, economically. Oh, brother. I, man, look, I have these words written down. I am still compiling news segments for the uh, reflections episode. I've I've gotten a good a good deal. I've managed to go back in time, not literally, but you know, by reading, I managed to go back in time and grab all those lovely juicy narratives. Like you know how they, when they told us that the Russians were using toilets and shovels to fight the Ukrainian. Yeah, I I have that. I have that. It's gonna be really fun to go through all these blatant lies when the war is over. And it'll be history at that point because it's it was told to us and people believed it. People actually believed it. I don't know how, but people did. But you know what? Hey, that's history, and we're gonna record it so that when we do a recap of this thing, when it's all fresh in everyone's minds, we'll have all the facts ready. And I'm gathering it now because I know that when when this shit turns for the south, it's gonna it's gonna magically get harder to find these articles with all these statements, these triumphalist statements about how Russia has lost and Ukraine is winning. So I'm grabbing it now for your consumption later on. So stay tuned for the uh, ev- eventual Reflections episode, whenever the war ends. We'll give it a couple weeks and then after the war ends. And then we'll, yeah. But yeah, so we have that. We have the UN Gen- Security Council agreeing, and this is at the behest of the US delegation there, strangely enough, agreeing to send a multinational intervention into Haiti reportedly to fight gangs? Yeah? Of all the places you're going to go to Haiti? And not, I don't know, Iraq? If you're going to fight gangs specifically, shoot, why not send an intervention into Chicago? Or Los Angeles? Or Mexico? It just seems like a very strange pick, but either either way, either way, we'll just throw the logic of that or the lack thereof out the window in favor of the principle, which is that this is a blatant violation of national sovereignty and a threat to the national sovereignty of other nations. The UN is a danger to national sovereignty. I mean, other countries can just vote to send troops into your country. Now imagine we were on the receiving end of that, because today we're the ones sending the intervention, right? But one day, we may be the ones to receive one. And that's not going to be very fun. That's not going to be fun at all. I hope that day never comes, but these are the types of dangers that we're playing with and the types of precedents that we're setting right now in the UN. And I think we should leave it alone. I think we should leave and withdraw from the UN just like we withdrew from the World Health Organization. And I think we should leave it alone. The The Senate made the right choice <laughs> in the 1900s when they didn't join the League of Nations. I'll say that much. And we should now correct, make, we should now make the correction and leave the UN. Just like we stayed out of the United Nations, I mean the League of Nations, we should get out of the United Nations. That's my take. And then, last but not least, we have Niger. 
accepting Algeria's offer of political mediation in Niger, wherein a six-month transition period towards a constitutional civilian government will take place. So we have the multipolar world exercising itself and manifesting itself in ways not quite predicted. Granted, I saw a couple headlines about Algeria potentially getting involved, um, but this is a very constructive way, and Niger has accepted. And just goes to show that all the, the shit that France did was so unnecessary and ended up being self-destructive in the end. But I'll digress. That's the rapid fire, and we'll get into the meat of today's episode in just a moment. Alrighty, time to get into the meat of today's episode. And we'll start with a bit of an addendum to our uh, third anniversary episode. There are a couple things that I didn't get to mention that I'll talk about here uh, right after the anniversary episode. And then we'll close out that lovely, lovely anniversary. Thank you for watching me for so long. Uh, But yeah, last week we talked about America becoming a civilization and how I believe population growth will basically do that for us. And I call for growth specifically of the American population from within and to 1 billion people. I advocated for America to have a population of a billion people and for those people to be born and raised here. Because I argued that if those people are born and raised here, then over a long enough period of time, you don't have to deal with the assimilation of foreign peoples that they're born and raised here. So they are from the ground up Americans. And then you have this expansion of population, the expansion of people who are who know only one culture, which is the American culture, the American way of doing things, America's religions, Americans put political traditions. And so if you expand that pool of people who only know America to a billion people, you can rapidly accelerate the evolution of America from a nation state to a civilization. Uh, essentially off the back of the fact that you can never truly wipe uh, a country of a billion people off the face of the earth. You would need nuclear weapons to do that. And so there's a number of security uh, benefits that come with having such a massive population. Uh, But that was sort of the core premise of my argument when I was talking, because I was heavy on population, but I don't think I sort of articulated well enough as to how exactly that would turn us into a civilization. It's all, it's all about people. It's all about people. A civilization is the people who live within it, their culture, their religion magnified over time. And I think that expanding the population to a billion people would rapidly accelerate the timetables for us becoming a civilization. Uh, but yeah. And the, fact that we could never be wiped off the face of the earth uh, this government of by and for the people we have issues right now but you know the, the premise of a government of by and for the people with a population of a billion people behind that premise behind the the constitution and the declaration of independence the federalist papers you have a billion people to back those things up who know only one culture one government one way of governing one political tradition you can rapidly accelerate the timetable for becoming a civilization. And if once you reach such ridiculous highs in terms of the number of people, you can never be wiped off the face of the earth. 
So even if we have to wait longer before America truly becomes a, a civilization, however exactly that term is defined, I can define it how I want, but however that term is defined, if, if you have a billion people, well, you have, you have all the time in the world. You're never going to go anywhere. So you will inevitably become a civilization precisely because you can never be wiped out. So that was the core premise of my argument. I, I was heavy on the population and how we can expand to a billion people, but I don't think I uh, articulated enough as to how exactly reaching this ridiculous number of people would help us become a civilization. And that's how. It's all about people. It's all about culture. It's all about religion. So if you grow up here, you only know American culture. You only know American religion. You only know America. Which means that your culture is going to be by default American. And that's how you build a civilization. You build it from the ground up through births, not through immigration. And I went over the problems of immigration uh, in the anniversary episode. So again, watch that. But yeah, you, you'll end up with a unique culture that creates that when you combine with religion, it'll create a civilization. And I forgot to include as well how America has its own unique denominations of the Christian faith on top of that, because I completely I actually I left out the religious part because I was so all in on the population. But we are we have Mormonism, Presbyterianism, Southern Baptist, and that's just to name a few. We have multiple multiple denominations of the Christian faith that are exclusive to America just about. Uh, the old world has, you know, Protestantism, Catholicism, and East Orthodox. Well, Orthodoxy. Uh, East Orthodox, I'm thinking of civilization, because that's what they call it. But yeah. And then they have the, the Roman Catholics, specifically, the Anglican Church. You have the Lutheran Church. And then, of course, you have the Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and even Ukraine Orthodox, because they, you know... You don't like being associated with Russia anymore. But yeah, you have those are the religious sects of Christianity. Those are the denominations of Christianity that are, that are dominant in the West, in the rest of the West, I should say. And then we have our own completely separate denominations of that same faith. And given the role that religion plays in a civilization, especially in the creation of a civilization, that cannot be discounted. That cannot be discounted at all, especially when you consider that America is on average more religious than the rest of the West, with the exception of, well, Russia. <laughs> so, yeah, this massive contributing factor, there's also distance, we're 3,000 miles away from Europe, and so it's inevitable that if Russia is a different entity from the rest of the West, then it is inevitable that we will become completely different from the West as well. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to be Western. Well, it'll take a, a long time for us to evolve into a truly, truly different civilizational distinction. But a civilization that is Western, that is inevitable. Just like how Russia is a Western civilization, we will become a Western civilization. Uh, it's, it's an inevitability. And it's not just the distances, it's not just the religious aspect, it's a number of other things as well. Because on top of that, uh, on top of what I spoke about in the anniversary episode, uh, the segment, and again, go watch it, because uh, I'm building off of that, I'm not 
clarifying too much what I said. I'm building off of what I said. Um, but on top of what I said in the anniversary episode, another major contributing factor to America becoming its own civilization is the increasingly different demographic makeup of the United States. Because no other Western nation has, to not to the same degree as the United States, these ethnicities, Blacks, Africans, and yes, there's a difference, Blacks, Africans, Asians, Arabs, and above all, Hispanics. You will not find Hispanics in most other Western countries. You can find Arabs, you can find Asians, you can find Africans and uh, some Blacks. And again, there's a difference. And you, you, can, you can thank slavery for that, but it's a reality. There is a difference. You can find them there, but you're not going to find Hispanics. Uh, you can find you can find the Spanish, but we're, we're not really talking about that. <laughs> they don't count. <laughs> but yeah, you're not going to find these same ethnicities, and you're certainly not going to find them in the same variety or the same number. Like we'll just we'll just take blacks for example. Just run with blacks, and so bear with me here. These numbers are going to blow your mind. Blacks make up. 13% of America's population and about 3 to 4% of the UK because they're the most comparable to us aside from France, but the French don't bother to differentiate between the ethnicities of the French living there. If you're a French citizen, you're a French citizen. Uh, a good and bad thing of the French Revolution. So the UK, it's about 3 to 4% blacks and African descent. United States is 13%. So we have a, a larger percent of a larger population is black and they have a smaller percent of a smaller population is black. And they're about as comparable to the United States as it's going to get, aside from maybe Canada. Uh, I mean, they're, they're going to be part of us anyway. Canada is going to be part of us anyway. So yeah, we don't need to count. <laughs> but yeah, so that's 40.1 million non-Hispanic blacks and 47 million self-identified blacks when we're looking at the United States. So 40 million non-Hispanic Blacks, 47 million self-identified Blacks in the United States. And then for comparison, about 2.5 million total Blacks in the UK. 40 million, 2.5 million. I, I think you can see the difference there. But now let's think about what that means. Because it means that this even even if we're just taking the 41 million figure it means that there are more black people in america than the total populations of every other western country save for like five germany italy france spain and the uk itself and that's just looking at non-hispanic blacks because there are a number of different uh metrics that measure the number of blacks in america which is why we're in with these two non-hispanic blacks 41 million uh, that is bigger than the populations of every other western country except for the five i just mentioned germany italy france spain and the uk but if you go with the 47 million figure for self-identified blacks now the black population of america is dead even with spain's total population at a moment in time when the Europeans are going into population declines, meaning that in perhaps two years, the total number of blacks, if we're running with that number, is going to be bigger than the population of Spain, the entire population of Spain. 
is equal to or less than the population of blacks in the United States. And every other country in Europe doesn't even meet the 41 million mark. I mean, the 40.1 million mark, excuse me, for non-Hispanic blacks. That's huge. That's huge. And that's a minority. That And that's the crazy part. Not only is that huge, but that's a ethnic minority population of the United States beating out all of Europe. Nation by nation, just beating out all but five European nations. Beating out five if you run with the 47 million number. An ethnic minority in the United States has a greater bulk to them than every country in Europe except for the five I mentioned and of course Russia. I don't think I don't think I need to mention that. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it takes you pre-war Ukraine, you could add to the list as well, unless you're talking the 47 million number, in which case even pre-war Ukraine, who had a who nominally had about 45 million people, even they would fall short of the 47 number. They could beat the 40.1, but they can't beat the 47. So whichever number you run with, we're just bigger than the rest of Europe. As a minority group in United States, and that's the key here, because uh, this is a mass, that's a massive minority. Okay, that is a massive minority. And given how big the US black population is, and how culturally, it, black culture is its own microcosm within the cultural machine that is the United States itself. And black culture dominates American culture as a whole. Music, films, etc. Uh, sports, oh goodness, sports. Black culture is a very prevalent force in American culture as a whole. So you're talking about a minority group within America having a bigger cultural presence than every other country in Europe. As a minority group to the bigger cultural behemoth that is the United States. And it's 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 crazy but when you think about that when you think about it in that way because that's one hell of a way to think about it when you think about it that way it's it's inevitable that the united states will become a, a completely separate entity from the rest of the west i mean the combination of blacks mind you that's 13 percent. the combination of blacks whites and hispanics by themselves not even counting all the other ethnicities in the united states but these are the big ones Asians are there too, and uh, they beat out a, a good number of European countries. But we'll just <laughs> we, we we won't shit on Europe too much. But like the combination of those three alone will, in time, create a culture far removed from that of any European nation, and in a way that Australia and New Zealand simply won't be able to replicate. And I, I'm not counting Canada because uh, at some point they're going to be a part of us, and won't uh, it won't really count. <laughs> That's, it's an inevitability. When you look at the demographics and the, the different scope, just the different magnitude that you're dealing with when you're looking at the US population compared to any other country in the West. I mean, Australia, uh, my goodness, Australia has fewer people than North Korea. That 20, 24 million and about 25 million in North Korea. 
and Australia is going into a population decline with a population smaller than North Korea. It's crazy. Like we're, we're just dealing with completely different calibers here. Uh, for whatever reason, the rest of the West just don't got population like that. They just don't have, like, as a collective, the EU has two and a half times our population. And I'm sure if you threw the Anglosphere together, uh, you could add, you, you could go all the way up to like three times our population. There's about 100 million or so people living in uh, the Anglosphere, not counting us. So you throw that on top of Europe, you, you can get about three times our population. But my goodness, compared country to country, you're smaller than a minority. You're smaller than a minority. So how, how does it make sense to assume that the United States is going to be one with the West when we have different demographics, different culture, and the, the microcosms of, of the minority groups within America have different cultures themselves that are far removed from Europe? Hispanics and Blacks especially. And these are dominant cultural forces within the United States. The Hispanics are coming up right now, but the Blacks are currently dominant, a dominant cultural feature of the United States. So when you get the mixture of, the mixture of these, which is inevitably going to happen, the, the longer we live together, the more they're going to intertwine, at the very least culturally speaking, interracial marriages are at an all-time high. On top of that, we're going to get another uniquely American ethnicity at some point in the future, just from all the interracial marriages. But the culture on top of that, how can you make the assumption that the United States is going to be more like the West a hundred years from now, instead of less like the West a hundred years from now, the trends just don't add up to us being one with the West. It's just not there. So that's a major piece of my argument as to us becoming our own civilization. The different, the difference of demographics and the breakdown of those demographics, <clears throat> the size and the scale of the demographics. It's like it's, it's just this ridiculous chasm between us and the next guy, which honestly is Russia. But even if we don't count Russia, it, Germany is only eighty million people and declining. Eighty million and declining. That's not even four times a fourth of our population not even a quarter of our population and they're going into population decline and we have on deck the trump baby boom and i think it'll succeed i do not bet against trump i do not bet against el donaldo but my goodness it's I think, uh, and again, maybe, maybe this is just me being different. You know, you know I, I see things very differently. I'm not like those other girls, but yeah, the trends just don't add up to a singular unified West to me. Uh, certainly not one that includes the United States in that. And that's on top of thus using the, the term the West incorrectly. And I, I went over why I believe the term is used incorrectly in last week's anniversary segment and in the second anniversary episode when I talk about civilization states. So uh, two, a two for one deal there. But yes, it's uh, a civilization is the people who live in it. And our people are different in many, 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 many more ways than one from those of the rest of the West. 
So while we will be a Western civilization, we will be a different Western civilization, a uniquely American civilization. That's what I believe. I also said in the episode, in the anniversary segment, that I believe we should annex Canada and Greenland to secure slash remove our northern border and gain access to all the land and resources necessary to keep America self-sufficient, basically till the end of time, even with a population of a billion people or more. Even with a population of a billion people or more, if we have Canada and Greenland, we'll never want or need from anyone else. We'll be a massive country. So the, and with a massive population to go along with that, and complete self-sufficiency in every aspect, arguments about, oh, this war over here is a danger to us, all of that will just, people will, <laughs> people will go, dude, we have a billion people, we're the size of the Soviet Union, we have everything we need, what are you talking about? So the enlargement of the American state serves both the purposes of strategic security, you know, Monroe Doctrine, getting foreign powers out because Canada recognizes the British crown as their head of state. Greenland is still a colony of Green- of Denmark. We can't just let that slide and a and, and hundred years from now be the only continent that hasn't removed the European colonies from their, our, the European colonialists from our hemisphere. That would be an embarrassment. And it would eventually lead to a security threat because we're not always going to be allies with these countries. You can't always be allies with a country. Britain and Portugal are one thing, and more often than not, they don't even bother calling in that alliance. It's just it's just there. It's At this point, it's a formality. Now, maybe at some point in the future, it'll gain some meaning again. But to pretend that we're going to be allies with these countries forever is insane. No alliance lasts forever. So if Canada recognizes the British crown as their head of state, and Greenland is a colony of Denmark, well, at some point in time, they're going to get active with their colonies again. We cannot allow foreign powers, foreign entities, extra hemispheric powers to come into our hemisphere and do anything. I don't care what they're doing. No. It's certainly not with a colony. This has got to go. Either they have to renounce their affiliation with these states and become independent, truly independent, or we have to take them. And that's what I said. But think about it this way. If we take Canada and Greenland, you serve the purpose of removing even the potential strategic threat. Because I, I I, like to think that I think ahead. Uh, I talked about the UN. But if, if we're thinking ahead here and we're thinking about the eventuality that we're not going to be allies with Britain forever, we're not going to be allies with Denmark forever. So what happens when you're not allies? Oops, now there's a potentially hostile foreign entity in your hemisphere because you didn't deal with it when you had the chance. No. By taking Canada and Greenland, Trump tried to buy Greenland during his administration. I hope he revives those attempts again. By taking Canada and Greenland, you remove the northern border and you basically take everything to the north of our border that could even potentially be used as a staging ground for an attack or for influence operations against the United States. The British love their influence operations against the United States. They did it in World War One and World War II to sway public opinion in favor of getting in the war. So we can't have that. We cannot have that. That is a danger to our sovereignty that undermines our sovereignty. 
So removing that base of operations from British interference in our government and removing even the possibility that someone in Europe conquers Denmark and then, oops, Greenland is theirs now too. <coughs> no, no, that's just not in the question. Take those, you remove the strategic, even the potential for a strategic danger. Their populations are small, they're Western, and they live close to us. They have similar cultures to us anyway. The assimilation would be a lot easier than, say, if we were to annex Cuba. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be a lot easier than that. And plus, they don't have a lot of people. So if push comes to shove, you just outpopulate them in the areas. Now you could call that colonization. Sure. But is it worth it? Yes. Take Canada and Greenland. You ward off any potential dangers coming from the north at any point in the future. You gain access to all the territory, land, and resources that America will ever need. And by getting such massive territorial uh, gains and going along with a massive population boom in the United States, which I believe will occur, and is just another feature of American history is we have these massive population booms. You have those, your self-sufficient resources, every resource at that point, Canada and Greenland are rich in resources that we don't know about and they don't know about because they can't extract them. And quite frankly, we have plenty of resources in the Rockies and probably the Appalachians too that we just don't know about. North America is rich. So if we have all of it, even if we don't have Mexico, we'll never want or need for anything. We'll have all the agricultural land of North America, meaning that we could better feed Greenland and the northern parts of Canada than they probably can for themselves. And we'd be a massive exporter, producer of everything, commodities, food, resources, energy, you name it. We would be a juggernaut and we would have no security threats because the only direction we would ever have to look in is our border with Mexico, especially once you get a deal with the Russians to basically partition the Arctic. Because then we'll have Alaska, all of Canada's northern territories, and Greenland. So you get to deal with the Russians, and that's just about it. Everyone else just has to conform because we said so. Because Russia's not going to lose Siberia. And then it's just a deal between us. Like, so you get that, and there's opportunities for resource extraction. There's opportunities for improving the lives of everyone involved. And I think that it would be a very useful necessity for warding off not just potential attack on the United States, as rare as those are, genuine attacks on the United States, having Canada and Greenland would ward off any potential of influence operations, sabotage, uh, espionage against us from the North. It would ward off the potential for other countries gaining access to the Great White North through whatever war they're fighting in Europe and then they just happen to, oh, we beat Britain, so now they give us their colony. Oh, we beat Denmark, so now they give us their colony. You, you just ward that off. You, know? it, 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 you just don't even, don't even let that be a possibility. So you defend America in that way, but you also defend America from itself by having this massive expansion of land and territory. Because when you're that big, when you, you have that many resources and you're using those resources, Keystone XL becomes an internal pipeline rather than an international pipeline. If you have that much land, that much resources, you're self-sufficient in everything, your population's going up and up and up and up and up, you reach a billion, why do you need an intervention again? So then you prevent America from 
having this interventionist impulse because you won't be able to sell the American people on the idea that what happens over there is necessary for their national security. Because at that point, it, it just becomes ridiculous. Like it's it's ridiculous already. But at that point, it would be straight up absurd. It's like, okay, dude, we're we're damn near the biggest country on the planet. If not, we are the biggest country on the planet, assuming Russia doesn't ever put the Soviet Union back together. Which they might, you know, through the consent, you know, of everyone except for Ukraine and the Baltics. But I mean, at that point, it's like, okay, dude, we're, we're the biggest, we're the second biggest, we're, we're one of the biggest countries on the planet. We are absolutely huge. We're self-sufficient in literally everything. Why do you need to go bomb kids in Iraq? So not only would it serve the purpose of keeping us from being attacked or anything like that, any potential security threat from the North in the future, but it would serve the dual purpose of keeping us safe from ourselves and this in the interventionist impulses, which at some point in the future, even though we're, we're steadily moving inwards and rejecting the, the warmongering tendencies that have dominated our politics, even though we're rejecting that now, at some point, those tendencies will resurge. And if we have this massive amount of land, it'll s protect us against that impulse for intervention. And in a way, it'll protect everyone else, <laughs> everyone else too, because you got to think about the people you're going to be doing the interventions into. If you're that big, why do you need an intervention in Mexico? <laughs> like like they're talking about in the, the GOP right now. It, it serves two purposes. And I think those purposes would serve to create a truly peaceful United States. That's, I truly believe that. And another thing, since we're talking about it, uh, I, it also occurred to me, since I recorded last week's episode, that Canada's demographic decline may actually enable us to go for the gold and annex them in a more uh, civil <laughs> manner sometime down the line. Because as they age, it'll become more difficult for them to sustain their societal functions, and namely their pension systems. And at a certain point, it might just make more sense or to have a merger with the United States, or even you get a, a Texas situation where there are just more Americans living in Canada than Canadians, which would be crazy. It, it would be crazy to reach that level of depopulation. But unfortunately, a lot of the developed world is heading in that direction. I have my reservations about the collapse, China and even Russia, uh, but China in particular, worst case scenario, they lose a billion people. They're still the second large, they're still the second largest country on the planet in terms of population. And that's ridiculous to think about, but then they're going to have growth. So you're going to drop, you're going to lose a billion people. You're still number two. They're number two now. You're, you still beat out America by a hundred, a hundred million people. And now you're growing again. And it's like, well, okay, that's just toxic, but that's the type of, that's the type of security that I want America to have. Like imagine being able to lose a billion people and still be number two in terms of population. Like that's immortality. And that's one of the reasons why India and China are immortal civilizations. Like you have these millions upon millions of people, like China and India had like hundred million plus populations in the ancient world. In the ancient world, like it took Rome 
to match them in terms of population. We can do the same. We can do the same. And with that level of people, combined with the fact that America is rarely, if ever, in danger of being invaded, uh, I think that as Latin America grows in strength, the possibility will grow, but the rationale may or may not. It, it's something to be seen. It's something to be seen. The new world is definitely something to watch as time goes on. But yeah, I think Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, they're going to be great powers. And we're going to be next door to a great power, which means that the possibility of being invaded is going to be there. But it's like, okay, well, why exactly would they want to do that? And then would it be a good idea for them to do that uh, is another thing. So having this massive population would protect us from uh, the Mexican Mongol. <laughs> Mexican Mongolia. <coughs> but yeah, it's... I think that since uh, civilization is the people that live in it, if you have a billion people, you become immortal. Uh, that, that's sort of the artificial mark that I have in my mind. If you have a billion people, you're an immortal civilization. Like that, that's the way you sort of purchase, like, you know how you, in games you can do a purchase to reach a certain level in the battle pass? It, yeah, the end, of the, the end of the battle pass is being an immortal civilization, and we can buy it <laughs> by, by just getting up to a billion people. Uh, that's the arbitrary number in my mind and for a number of reasons i think it will hold true but yeah when as canada ages and this will be true for greenland as well with an even smaller population in greenland it might make sense for america to take control of these territories and greenland especially considering that denmark is going to be in demographic decline and it'll be harder for them to maintain their linkages and their subsidization of Greenland in a world where they're shrinking as an economy or stagnant as an economy and where their population is shrinking, which it'll just get harder and harder to hold on to that, that territory. And at a certain point, it might just make more economic sense to take the buyout from America of a trillion, maybe $2 trillion and just hand the territory to America. And a similar thing might play out with Canada as they age and they start falling off a cliff and, and the, the demographic decline of the, the developed world is truly uh, terrifying when you think when you think about it as people instead of just numbers. Like these are people, whole populations, whole peoples that are damn near dying out. Like Ukraine is a foreshadowing for what's to come. Like people aren't thinking about it because it's a war instead of the slow, gradual, rapid, or rapid in the case of some, die out of people because they just got old and died out. But Ukraine is a, a foreshadowing for what's to come for the developed world. And I'm not talking about the West. I mean the developed world, the West, East Asia, Southeast Asia, parts of uh, Latin America, some parts of the Middle East, although not a lot. I think the Middle East is going to be the dark horse of this century. But when you look at the, the demographic declines of Canada and even Greenland and Denmark, the, the main countries that we'd be dealing with here for the acquisition of these territories, at a certain point, it might just make sense to hand them over to America anyway, uh, especially if you end up with a, a Texas-style Texas situation in Canada where there are just more Americans living in Canada than there are Canadians. And at that point, sentiments for joining America would be higher by default. <clears throat> Just like how we talked about uh, Eastern Ukraine, or actually Ukraine as a whole, 
since the anti-Russian Ukrainians have left in such massive numbers, that increases the relative proportion of the pro-Russian Ukrainians within the country. So as more and more Ukrainians who don't like Russia flee Ukraine, <clears throat> excuse me, that leaves a greater and greater proportion of the pro-Russian population in Ukraine who are going to be more favorable towards a Russian governance of the territory to the point where I don't think there's going to be a partisan war or even an, uh, even many issues with occupation of vast swaths of central and parts of Western Ukraine if Russia goes that far. I think they might have to by circumstance, but for similar reasons. But again, it's, it's like Texas. When you just have more people of a certain culture living in an area, they're going to be more favorable towards a merger and a union with their home, the country of their home culture. Something similar might play out in Canada. And demographic reasons might incentivize Denmark to take the buyout and sell Greenland to us for a trillion, maybe $2 trillion. I think it'll happen just off of demographics alone. And that's something that I, I didn't think about when I was making last week's episode. But yeah, you get all that. And once you have that territory, the U.S. government will be forced, essentially, to keep 100% of its focus on us, the American people, and our new Canadian and Greenlandish American brothers. And it, the U.S. government will be forced on properly integrating all of our new territories and states, meaning no interventions. And even when they do get the impulse for an intervention or two, uh, the size and scope of America will basically uh, cock them, cock block them from having their interventions. Because the American public just won't go for it, especially if we have clean elections. <clears throat> but yeah, all that, uh, all that I mentioned uh I, I, again i'm building off of what i said in the third anniversary segment so if you haven't listened to that one go and watch it third anniversary episode you can listen to just the anniversary segment now since i've been releasing each uh segment that we talk about on the podcast individually uh, except for the rapid fire except for the rapid fire you, you gotta listen to the main one for the rapid fire but it's at the beginning so you know it balances out but yeah go watch it uh it, it's past wednesday i release these these individual segments on every wednesday so you should be able to listen to it by itself if you want to but yeah i laid out my case and this is a pretty good addendum to that so now we'll get into the rest of the news that we have available to us and we'll just start with stoltenberg 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 jens stoltenberg the NATO Secretary General. But why are we talking about him? Oh, it's because he has admitted after a year and a half that the Russo-Ukrainian war was partially caused by NATO expansion. <clears throat> Truly shocking admission. Now, I shoot, I could have told you that. Oh, I, I did. <laughs> I did. Oh, it's so... It's, <coughs> oh goodness, it's great and terrible to be right. and But in this case, we'll just enjoy being right because, you know, the alternative is you, you curl up into a ball and you cry about all the death that has been caused by this blatant oversight by this guy who is just now admitting what he knew. He had to have known at the time. He had to have known at the time. 
and decided to make strange statements. And, and we'll bring up those statements towards the end. But first, we'll get over what he has said now, because he's had a change of heart. Well, not really, but he's telling on himself. <laughs> now, throughout this war, we've gone over the, the reasons for its occurrence and basically how the West didn't honor its obligations, namely with Minsk II. We talked about how NATO expansionism was running up against Russian red lines, and it was it was a significant precondition for the war. We talked about that, and we talked about it on and off throughout the conflict. Now, when we talk about the whole freezing the conflict idea, we, we talk, we bring it up again, because especially with the idea floating around now that they're going to trade land and explain, in exchange for NATO membership, it, we know it's not going to work. Why? Because Ukraine joining NATO is a red line for the Russians that is in part responsible for the war that they're fighting right now. They're not going to let you have this thing that they went to war with you over. That It, do, it just doesn't make sense. And, it, and for whatever reason, it just doesn't get through the skulls of these people. It just It's just like, who's there? Nobody. <laughs> it's strange that it, it just doesn't click. That NATO membership is the one thing you can't do, but it's the only option that they feel that they want to go along with. And it's like, well, okay, you've chosen war. <laughs> multiple times multiple multiple times because they said this was a red line and they demonstrated that you can't just cross their red lines without consequences and this is the biggest red line no nato membership for ukraine and they had the audacity to say we can expand nato wherever we want and the russians can't tell us what we can do they don't get a veto and now look where that got you now look where that got you like i mean think about this if i tell you if i tell you that like uh, i'm trying to think of trying to think of a good analogy here I'm trying to think of a good analogy hmm what's a, what's a good analogy for this nano membership is the one thing you can't do but that's the only thing you want hmm It's like, it's like, imagine, imagine you and I live together, right? Imagine you and I live together. And I say, you can do whatever you want, right? We, this is our house, this is your, your house, and it's my house. But it's your house too. You can do whatever you want here. Just don't jump on my bed. That's the one red line. Don't jump on my bed. And then you, and then we get into a fight. We get, into, we get into a fight, we get into an argument. Let, let's just say that I felt like apologizing because I felt like I was in the wrong. I don't I don't feel like fighting you, all right? So I'm like, what's gonna, how can we pass this over? And you say, I wanna jump on your bed. I'm like, no, that, that's the one thing you can't do because my bed is rickety and it'll break if you do that. So no, you can't jump on my bed. Now, a normal person would say, okay, well, let's figure something else out. Right at that point, a normal person would figure something else out. But these people go, no, I want to jump on your bed. I'm like, no, you can't jump on my bed. It will break if you do that. That's why it's a red line. I cannot allow you to do that. You're going to break my stuff. I'm not sleeping on wood splinters because you want to jump on my bed. You can't have that. You can have anything else. You can't have that. And then 
again, at, at that point, a normal person would say, well, okay, I want to drink the, the I want to drink the apple juice you buy. Cool. I, I, or I want to drink the eggnog when you get some. I want, as a matter of fact, I want you to go buy two cartons of eggnog right now. Cool. We can go get some eggnog. It's delicious. But no, these people, they, they say, no, we, we, we don't care what Russia has to say. We want to jump on Russia's bed. And it's like, dude, the one thing you can't do is put Ukraine into NATO. <coughs> but that's the only thing they, they can think of. It's like, uh, have they just reached a dead end of ideas? Like, is that the only thing going through their head? NATO membership for Ukraine? <laughs> like, you don't, you, don't, you don't have any other solutions? Nano membership for Ukraine is all you think about. It's 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 insane, and we we've gone over this. Nato membership for Ukraine is a red line, and yet when they talk about freezing the conflict and making Ukraine exchange land for Nato membership, it's like it's not going to work. Nato membership is off the table. You can't have peace with the Russians in exchange for Nato membership. If the reason there is not peace between you now is because they don't want you to have NATO membership, like make it make sense. It's I can't stand these people. <laughs> I can't stand these people. They they drive me crazy. They uh, they drive me up a wall. I'll say that much. But you know, common sense. We've been discussing common sense on this podcast, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't get through to them. But last week we had a, a shocking admission come out the mouth of none other than NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. And this is while he was justifying the way in which they've handled the war. Shocking admission, because they, they, they always say that it's unprovoked, unjustified, illegal war, imperial war, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. They always say that, always say unprovoked, always say unjustified. And yet... Here's what he has to say now, while he's trying to justify our involvement in the war. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, quote, they, he says that Putin, quote, sent a draft treaty that they wanted NATO to promise no more NATO enlargement. That was what he sent us. That was a precondition for not invading ukraine let me let me let me, let me just let me just run that run that back real quick you know, just, just make sure you heard that right because i know you're, you're probably going like what what there's no way he said no 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 let me, let me just run that ride back he said that putin quote sent a draft treaty that they wanted nato to promise no more nato enlargement that was what he sent us and that was a precondition for not invading Ukraine. Stoltenberg continues by saying, quote, of course, we didn't sign that. The opposite happened. He wanted us to sign a promise to never enlarge NATO. He wanted us to remove our military infrastructure in all our allies that have joined NATO since 1997, meaning half of NATO, all the Central and Eastern Europe. We rejected that. Then Stoltenberg says the quiet part out loud, saying, quote, So he went to war to prevent NATO, more NATO across his borders. He has got the exact opposite. 
he has got more NATO presence in eastern part of the alliance. And he has also seen that Finland has already joined the alliance and Sweden will soon be a full member. He then finishes by saying, quote, this is good for the Nordic countries. It is good for Finland and Sweden and also good for NATO. And it demonstrates that when President Putin invaded a European country to prevent more NATO, he is getting the exact opposite, end quote. Now, I don't know if, I don't know if you noticed, but he told on himself not once, but twice while trying to justify NATO's involvement in the war and, and, and paint that involvement in a positive light. Because he, he says it out in the blue, they sent us a draft treaty for no more NATO enlargement. No NATO enlargement, part specifically into Ukraine, no NATO enlargement was a precondition for Putin not invading Ukraine. So if you don't enlarge NATO, he doesn't invade Ukraine, because they were talking about expanding U NATO into Ukraine. You know, back in the fall and winter of 2021 before the, the war. Well, before the Russian intervention in the war. That's what they're talking about. No NATO enlargement. And there, if, you, if we have no NATO enlargement, then there's going to be no invasion of Ukraine. And this guy says, well, of course we rejected that. Okay. <laughs> well, no shoot. No shit. <laughs> now there's a war in Ukraine. Why? Because you couldn't just say no. You couldn't just say, oh, we're not going to expand NATO. You couldn't just honor your promise. You couldn't just be satisfied with what you had. No, you needed to be able to expand anywhere, everywhere, wherever you wanted at any time. And Russia can't have a say. Russia doesn't get a veto. You, you, you doubled down on all that goofy shit and ignored common sense. Because clearly he has kept his word. Putin has kept his word. He said... Not invading Ukraine is a precondition for him. Not, uh, not expanding NATO, excuse me. Not expanding NATO is a precondition for him not invading Ukraine. You expanded NATO and he invaded Ukraine. So he, he was, you admit that he was telling you the truth now. While you're trying to paint this in a positive light, oh, he got the opposite of what he, he has more NATO on his borders now. Uh, yeah? That's... That's what he, and then, he, and then he says it again, quote, so he went to war to prevent NATO, more NATO across his borders. That's what he said. He told on himself twice. It, in the same sitting, while trying to paint this in a positive light and paint Putin as uh, the aggressor and the evil dictator, he literally laid out that we, are responsible for this war just from the the nato enlargement aspect because we could lay a whole bunch of other uh claims at our feet as to how we are responsible for this war going all the way back to minsk too and actually all the way back to the overthrow of ukraine's government in 2014 but just with nato expansion he has he has said twice that yeah we're responsible because we wanted to enlarge nato and he said that if you would do that we're going to have a war in ukraine we enlarged it anyway so we have a war in ukraine don't don't look at the fact that we have that he has just admitted that it's our fault that there's a war in Ukraine. Don't don't look at that. <laughs> don't look at all that. No, uh, he's bad. 
he he wanted no NATO, so we gave him more NATO. Okay, don't look at the fact that more NATO caused a war in Ukraine, and that war is uh, sucking your pockets dry of your tax money. Don't don't look at that. Okay, we stood up to Putin, and, and that isn't that what really matters. That's what he's saying. This guy told on himself twice, and basically said that we are at fault, but that it's it's a good thing that we're at fault because it's good for the Nordic countries and Finland and Sweden and NATO. Because it demonstrates that we that when Putin invaded a European country, we uh, he to prevent more NATO, he's getting the exact opposite, and he got he got like heated at the end when he's saying the exact opposite because he he thinks he's saying something profound when really he just exposed himself as being the part of the problem. <laughs> we'll just say that much part of the problem. It's insane. It's a crazy admission, and the fact that he doesn't really. <laughs> that it's an admission of guilt rather than him standing up and making this brave statement against Putin, uh, well, demonstrates what I've already assumed, which is that he's uh, not the brightest candle in the bunch. We'll just say that much. And it's, it's insane. He told himself twice. He told on himself twice while trying to paint the involvement in a positive light. And this is the same guy, mind you, who a few months prior to the Russian invasion, and we covered it on the episode because I just couldn't believe that someone had the gall to say that. He said that Russia had no legitimate security concerns. Not in Eastern Europe, not in Europe, not on Russia's border. He just said Russia has no legitimate security concerns. I'm like, what are you saying? Like, dude, you're talking about expanding an alliance who was created for the sole purpose of fighting Russia. You're talking about expanding that alliance to Russia's contemporary borders after their frontiers receded by over a thousand miles. Because before, Russia's frontier was halfway through Germany, right? That was the farthest point of the Eastern Bloc, the, the Warsaw Pact. The Warsaw Pact comes down, Russia's frontier goes from East Germany, like halfway through Germany, because that's what the border was. Their frontier goes from halfway through Germany all the way back to the Soviet border, the actual Soviet border, Belarus, Lithuania, etc. Belarus, Lithuania, Ukraine, etc. Moldova. It fell back by a couple hundred miles just from that. And then the Soviet Union collapses again. Well, well, not again. It collapses, and then the frontier falls back again by more hundreds of miles. And and the frontier falls back the farthest in Ukraine because Ukraine's really long. And yet somehow NATO has found its way up to Russia's contemporary border after the frontier has been moved back by hundreds and hundreds of miles. And they're not supposed to perceive that as a threat? They have no legitimate security concerns I, I i couldn't believe that he had the audat i couldn't believe he was dumb enough <laughs> to say that but he did and now here he is telling on him tattling on himself and all of nato while trying to to justify what nato has done and it's you know i gotta i gotta appreciate the stupidity of these people sometimes because it, it it gives me a lot to talk about i mean like I could sit here and rant about how dumb they are for hours, and uh, some of you would listen. I, uh, <laughs> I try to I try to actually get get a little bit of news in there, you know, so to go along with my rants, and then my 
Yeah, but but yeah, it's there's no way that you just that he doesn't realize that he's telling on himself right now. Or maybe or maybe there is a way, and he's just really not bright. Not not exactly what you'd call uh, intelligent. Like my goodness, no security concerns, and what would those concerns? And, and someone would ask what those concer- security concerns might be. What are those security concerns? You might ask. Ukrainian NATO membership. They don't. A, a, a military alliance built for the sole purpose of fighting Russia, expanding into former Russian territory that Russia happens to have the, one of their longest borders with. And they don't have a security concern when you're building ballistic missile installations in Poland prior to this is like, dude, you're a problem. You have made yourself an overt problem and have been overtly hostile towards us. And now you want to expand this overtly hostile alliance. Closer? No, we do have security concerns, legitimate concern, AKA NATO enlargement. NATO enlargement was the security concern. And actually he, this guy told on himself three times because he didn't just mention twice that Russia went to war over NATO enlargement, but he, in the beginning of his statements, said that not expanding NATO was a precondition for Russia not invading Ukraine. So it's three times. My goodness. Let's let's go over this. At the very beginning, he says, not expanding NATO was a precondition for not invading Russia. That's one. He says, we sent the draft, he sent the draft treaty to that where NATO would promise no more NATO enlargement. He said, we rejected that. Okay, so that's number two. And then he says, so he went to war to prevent NATO, more NATO across his borders. He got the exact opposite. That's number three. That's number three. It's, he went to war. Putin invaded a European country to prevent more NATO. He's getting the exact opposite. Shoot, that's four. Oh my God. He told himself four times in just these, these handful of quotes I have off of him. Four times, tattling on yourself four times in one sitting is crazy. But think about this. He is acknowledging. Think about what he's acknowledging. Because what it means is that he, had we simply acknowledged Russia's security concerns and agreed to not expand NATO, then there likely wouldn't be a Russo-Ukrainian war right now. Had Ukraine signed the the unofficial Minsk III Accord, which is what I call the draft treaties that they initialed, that they were going to have with Russia before we intervened along with Britain to stop it, they would have had everything except for Crimea and the Donbass, and they would have had all the major powers as guarantors for their security. China, Russia, United States, Britain, France, Germany. I think Turkey was in there too, but I, I forget. But I remember those ones. You have all the major powers guaranteeing your security. Shoot, that's the best of both worlds. Now you can be a bridge. Now you can do what you were doing before where you were just getting the best deal out of both sides. You're still going to get transit fees from Russian gas moving through your territory. You're 
still going to be able to integrate with the West. But if the West ever turns hostile towards you, Russia's a guarantor now. It's Russia and China. And if Russia and China are hostile to you, the West is your guarantor because they're all your guarantor. It's, it was the deal of a century. It was the deal of the decade. I'll say that much. And they turned it down. Like, had all we had to do was just be adults and deal with Russia as a an equal partner in this. But they just couldn't do it. And now there's a war. There likely would not be a Russo-Ukrainian war right now had they simply been mature adults about this. But, fortunately, we are governed by children. And these children started a war. And Ukraine will pay the price. Ukraine will pay the price. But now, we'll get into the final topic of today's episode, which is some high, some comments coming out of high-level Russian officials, which hint at a coming Russian offensive. And I, I talked a little bit about this earlier on when I brought up... Uh, uh, when I brought up the... Uh, dang. <laughs> uh, right, right, right. Russia, when they were <laughs> increasing their military size to 70%, I just blanked completely right there. But yeah, I brought up Russia increasing the size of their military spending by 70%. <clears throat> by 70%. I also mentioned it when I talked about you, the UK sending military advisors to Ukraine and how they're going to get blown up when the Russian offensive starts. Uh but yeah, especially with that increase of 70% in the Russian military budget, because we've seen what the military budget they have already has been getting them and how they've been outproducing all of NATO in every aspect of military production, except for planes. And that's honestly, in my opinion, because they just haven't tried. They just haven't tried. They just outproduce. We spend three quarters of a trillion dollars on our military to get outproduced by a country with half our population. And uh, 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 what, a fifth of our budget? An eighth of our budget? How much did they spend? A hundred and something? We'll, we'll look it up. Because <laughs> they're, they're going to spend 70% more. It, we've seen what the Russians have been able to get. The ridiculous bang for their buck. Because they don't spend $750 billion on their, their military. Russian military budget yeah and they've they've outproduced us in artillery we're running out of artillery we ran out of artillery 155 millimeter artillery shells we ran out they're still going they have million they're they're putting up twenty thousand a day casually forty thousand if they're in high intensity conflict it's it's crazy it's crazy Mm -mm. like they have uh it's 10.78 trillion in rubles, but in dollars, it's 109 billion. 109 billion is what the Russians spend on their defense budget. Mm. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Oh, wait. Wow. That's, that's actually, am I looking at the right number here? Because a uh, hundred, that's what they plan on spending. Okay. Next year, or then I'll send a plan exposure. Wow. 
they're planning to spend 109 billion rubles next year. And they're gradually working up to 36.6 trillion because they're, they're at 10 point, uh, they're basically 11 trillion rubles now. And that's the key here. They want to get to 36.6 trillion rubles in their expenditure. So they're going, uh, they're going for the 10.8 trillion rubles now for next year's budget, which is equivalent to 109 billion. They're moving up to 109 billion. So they weren't even at 100 billion before. They weren't even at 100 billion before. They want to spend around 160 billion. Uh, that, that's where they're trying to get to, and then perhaps even further beyond. They're sub 100 billion for basically every year before the war began. They were spending less than 100 billion USD on their military before the war began. They're, 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 Increase in the military budget is getting them above the 100 billion mark. And that's insane. This is an insane bang for the buck. So when we get into these comments, just think about that. Just chew on that while we talk about what these statements made imply. They're trying to double the, the military budget when they're already outproducing us and understand that that increase in the budget is going to come with equivalent increases in military production and equipment. Whereas we spend eight times what they're spending, what they're planning on spending right now. We're spending eight times that much and we can't get reciprocal uh, production of equipment and ammunition. We don't have the industry anymore. We're not in the industry anymore. They do. So as they increase their budget, they're going to start producing more and it's just going to completely outpace anything we have. <clears throat> people talk about, people talk about, oh, we have to fight you, fight Russia and Ukraine so we can deter China. How? What, what are you deterring by running out of 155 millimeter artillery shells? What are you deterring by spending up a third of your HIMARS ammunition? What are you deterring when you're sending cluster munitions to Ukraine, what are you deterring when you're doing that? You're not deterring anything. When you've exhausted your arsenals, your stockpiles of weapons so badly that you have to get an infusion of half a million shells from South Korea to cover the loss. You're not deterring anything. You're, you're just an idiot. <laughs> because I, I, I listen to the Republican debates just, just just to see what the, the future <laughs> looks like because you know trump can't be there forever and we unfortunately might end up with one of those people as our president but they're talking about oh we, we have to defend we have to defend ukraine to send a message to china china but i'm like you ran out of 155 millimeter artillery shells in an artillery war the russians are out producing you in every aspect of military production but just looking at what we're expending, how are you deterring China by running out of weapons that you would otherwise fight them with? How are you deterring them? If I, that's like me, that's like me shooting a man, emptying my clip into him so that I can deter the next robber. It's like, well, 
the second he realizes that the clip is empty, and I'm, I'm going to make sure he knows that the clip is empty, I'm going to give everything I've got. It's like I'm being jumped by two robbers. I Two robbers are invading my home. I see one, I shoot him so I can protect my uh, Ukraine, and we'll just say Ukraine is my family in the background. And the, the free world, uh, there we go, the, the free world is in the background, you know? I'm going to shoot one guy, I'm gonna, and then I'm going to keep shooting him. I'm not going to shoot the other one. I'm going to keep shooting the one guy until I run out of bullets in my clip. Because that'll send a message to the second guy. No, idiot. <laughs> the second guy's going to shoot you now because he knows there's no threat. You don't have any more ammunition. He's going to go and do what he wants with impunity in your house because you can't do jack diddly or squat to him now. What are we deterring? I... I can't stand these people. <laughs> I can't. I I can't stand these people. It's, ugh. It's, ugh. But I'll digress. I'll digress. We let's get into these statements, right? We'll, I just want. I just wanted to cover that while it was fresh in my mind. It popped up in my mind, and it's. I I, f- I have a feeling it'll be relevant a little later on when we, as we go further into political season, but. <clears throat> Yeah, it's so dumb. So dumb. Unbelievably dumb. I can't wait for MAGA to take over. These people, it's, uh, they sicken me. <laughs> they give me headaches. I'll say that. But yeah, these high-level Russian officials. We'll start with Dmitry Medvedev. Because he's made a number of statements alluding to the potential annexation of more Ukrainian territory. In one, in one such comment, he said, quote, the special military operation... In Ukraine, he's talking about the special military operation will continue until the complete destruction of the Nazi regime in Kiev and the liberation of originally Russian territories from the hands of the enemy. End quote. Those are some big words. Those are some big statements. We're going to destroy the Nazi regime in Ukraine. Complete destruction, mind you. Not just the military of Ukraine, not just the Ukrainian armed forces. No, we're going to destroy the regime in Kiev. And then we're going to liberate originally Russian territories. Well, depending on how you define the term originally Russian, one could categorize, I don't know, all of Ukraine as originally Russian. I mean, you have not just the Soviet Union. For whatever reason, people people tend to forget that the Russian Empire existed uh, before, for like hundreds of years before the Soviet Union. Like, this territory was part of the Russian Empire before the Soviet Union. So you have centuries of history, and that's not even counting the Kievan Rus, which was a Russian state. So again, defend, depending on how you define the term originally Russian territories, you could cla- you could easily categorize all of Ukraine as that and cite multiple periods in history where that would be the case. You could make that case. So this is, this has really broad potential implications, just that statement alone. And again, this is alarming. Not alarming as in, oh, we're in danger now, America. No, no. It's alarming because throughout this entire war, I've sort of been sort of off in this corner <laughs> where I'm the only one saying that I think the war is going to end with a total annexation of Ukraine. Not because the Russians necessarily wanted it to, to go that way, but because... You know, they, they kind of needed to to accomplish their goals, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But there was I was well aware that I was the fringest of fringes in the way I thought this war was going to end. 
now we have Medvedev making statements like this. And it's like, well, okay, that's a massive step closer to where I am. Now let's hold on. Now let's let let's let's settle down. Let's let's not <laughs> let's let's not be barbarians about this. You know, let's let's you know, um, there, there's no need to come all the way over here. No, <laughs> whoa, whoa, let's hold our horses. <laughs> I'm kind of on the fringe here. Let's let's not walk over to my position. <laughs> but that's a massive step towards my position. You, you see, that is a massive step towards the things that I say and how I believe this is gonna end. But and <clears throat> that's not all he said. In another comment, he said, quote, victory will be ours and more new regions will join Russia, end quote. Victory will be ours, more new regions will join Russia. How many regions? How exactly is victory being defined here? Again, these are vague enough to where you could say, yeah, they're going to take all of Ukraine. And that's what's shocking here because you have this guy, Medvedev, who's no small figure in Russian politics, he's basically alluding to taking a lot, a lot of Ukraine's territories. At the very least, the, the, the Russian speaking parts of it. And that's just our assumption because it's not like he's specified that. He says originally Russian territories. Okay, well, how do you define that? Uh, well, we're, we're going to annex more territories. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to annex more, more regions of Ukraine will join Russia. Victory will be ours. Okay, well, what are the victory conditions and how many territories? As a matter of fact, what territories specifically are you looking at adding to the Russian Federation? No answer. It, these answers are so vague that you could throw in the entirety of Ukraine and these they would still be, you these statements would still stand. And the fact that we even at this point where we have to speculate because before it was very measured. It was, yeah, we've taken these territories. We're settled. Yeah. We're, we're going to take Kharkov and Odessa and maybe Odessa, you know, it was much more limited. We're going to destroy the Ukrainian military, denazify, demilitarize, et cetera. It was okay. But now the scope of what you can, the scope of how you can interpret these statements can go all the way to where my position is. And that's what's shocking. Because I am well aware that I am the fringest of fringes in my assessment of where I think this is going to go. There is no reason they should be coming over to my position. You understand? This, is, But that's where this is going. And it's not just Medvedev. Because during a TASS interview, TASS is a, a Russian news agency, uh, damn near banned over here. But <coughs> courtesy of ground news, I'm able to get to them. Uh, thank goodness. Although they had the little Russian flag and it's like, oh, this is a Russian source. Well, okay, sure. The B and the BBC is a, a state-run British news source. But we don't put British flags over. But whatever. Uh, the, but during a TASS interview, when asked uh, if conditions for talks were likely, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov said when he was asked if the conditions for talks were likely. He said he doesn't see any uh, any conditions where the talks would be likely, saying, quote, the West is obviously testing us for willingness to accept its terms. Uh, he Later on in this same statement, he says, quote, they want to take a break for a few months. 
without signing any agreement except a temporary ceasefire in order to gain time and pump more weapons into Ukraine in addition to what has already been sent. He continues by saying, quote, we see through their plans and that we are ready for talks and will consider any realistic proposal, but it is out of the question to impose a ceasefire during talks because they already used this trick to deceive us once. Uh, and I'll end the quote there before I continue, because he's obviously talking about Minsk too. He's obviously talking about Minsk one. He's obviously talking about shoot uh, the unofficial Minsk three agreement where they Russia and Ukraine had those draft treaties, and Russia pulled back from the north as a, as a symbol, a gesture of goodwill, as a part of those treaties. It was stipulated in the treaties that they would do that as a a symbol of goodwill for they so they could continue the talks for peace. And this is right after the war starts, mind you. So this war could have been over in April, May, or June of 2022 if the talks just took that long. But fewer people would have died. Ukraine would objectively have more territory than it does now. And there would not be the threat of NATO membership for Ukraine. And with those treaties, mind you, Ukraine would have had security guarantors in United States, France, Britain, uh, Russia, China, and I think Turkey. Basically, free NATO membership without being in NATO. Because these countries are going to guarantee your independence. You get NATO membership, you get CSTO membership, you get whatever China's alliance <laughs> might end up being called. You become a protectorate of China. That, that's a square deal. Turned it down. So, and, the, and these are obviously the things that he Lavrov is referring to when he says that they've already tried this trick before. So there's he's open to talk. Russia's open to talks, but they have to be realistic, and there's not going to be a ceasefire occurring while you're in the middle of talks. You're going to do the talks while active combat is still going on, and the active combat isn't going to stop until we reach an agreement for an, a proper armistice, like an actual end of the war. No ceasefires. An actual treaty is the only way the war ends. And we can negotiate that treaty, but there's we're not going to have a ceasefire while we're negotiating that treaty because you can't be trusted. And that's the problem with not honoring your obligations and thinking that you can pull one over on the other guy every time. And now they're calling your, your they're calling you on your bullshit. And they don't like that. But yeah, so he, that's what he says. Uh, where it's all, uh, all right, all right. He, he also dismissed the uh, Zelensky peace plan uh, as unrealistic. So that's off the table. And we've gone over why. Like I, I've broken down the peace plan, uh, namely that Russia's never going to consent to being tried as criminals for a war that NATO expansion started mind you for a war that the overthrow of ukraine's government started because ultimately the russo-ukrainian war is an outgrowth of the donbass war for independence which itself occurred because the west overthrew ukraine's government in 2014 and installed nazis and the donbass luhansk and donetsk people's republics 
they declared independence and then fought a war for independence against Ukraine for eight years before Russia intervened on the side of the people who were being oppressed by literal Nazis. So there's no way that they're going to consent to being treated as war criminals for with that as the context. There's no way they're, they're, they're going to consent to that. There's no way that they're going to withdraw all troops from Ukrainian territory and then negotiate for peace, which is what has been floated around lately, uh, especially back when the counteroffensive first started, where, oh, they're just going to, they have to withdraw all their troops and then we can talk. Well, what are you going to talk about at, at that point? Oh, the terms of war reparations from Russia that they're not going to give you? Like, what are you going to talk about at that point? It's, <coughs> yeah. We went over that. We went over the, the UN. And there were a lot of other things in Zelensky's peace plan that I've broke down extensively in the episode where I talked about Zelensky's peace plan. Um, I have since forgotten <laughs> a lot of what those stipulations were. But yeah, go back to that episode and you'll you'll get you'll get a lot uh more info out of that one than you will out of me right now cuz I just have voided all that from my mind. But look, I I went in depth as to why it's unrealistic. Lavrov is dismissing it as unrealistic. You want to know why? Go back watch that episode. Uh, uh, but yeah, it, it wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work. I trust myself enough to know that when I said it wasn't going to work, I was honest. But yeah, so he dismissed that as unrealistic. So you can't be, they're not going to have talks about the Zelensky peace plan. Uh, so that's off the table. They're going to have to come up with a new plan. And there's not going to be a ceasefire where you're having talks either. So one, you're going to need a new plan, a new formula for getting peace with the Russians. Uh, none of this trading land for NATO membership, that's out the window already. And yeah, it's everything the West is proposing as potential peace plans is already null and void precisely because, as I went out of my way to state, they're unrealistic. They're, you can't make demands from the guy who's beating your ass. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. They're occupying 20% of your territory. They sat there, dug in. You've launched this massive offensive, wave after wave after wave of men, just to get uh, gobsmacked, mollywopped, so to speak, by Russian artillery and minefields and machine guns and and bombs. You're losing. You have lost hundreds of thousands of men. Three hundred thousand on the low end, with that obituary account. 600,000, well, 300,000 dead, which means 600,000 on the low end because they're the deaths make up half of Ukraine's casualties. So if you have 300,000 obituaries from this war alone, and these are military obituaries, that means you have 600,000 casualties on the low end. And you have people like Douglas McGregor, Scott Ritter putting the number at basically 800,000 because they say the 400,000 are dead. RFK Jr. said 350,000 were dead. Deaths make up half the casualties. That means 700,000, 800,000 deaths. And that was weeks ago. I wouldn't be surprised if the next time we get a number coming out of their mouths, they're saying half a million are dead. Which would mean that a million are casualties. It's You do not have a million casualties. Take no land. Lose all your equipment in these offensives. 
get outproduced by the Russians and only only inflict about 100,000 casualties on the Russians, probably like 120, 160,000 at this point, casualties on the Russians, with loss, with a kill to loss ratio like that, you're not in a position to demand anything. You should, you're in a position to beg, but they haven't accepted that. They're making demands from the people who are uh, mass murdering them on the battlefield. It's just, there are only so, there are only so many ways I can put it. You can't make demands and you certainly can't propose a peace plan where the Russians are the ones who are going to be punished. No, they won the war. They beat you. You cannot then say that they have to be the ones to be tried as criminals in an international court. No, you lost. So you have to make a proposal from the from the position of someone who has lost a war. You need to come at this from the perspective of loss mitigation, not we want all our territory back. Well, you're not going to get that. So what can you get is what you should be saying, not we're going to get everything and you're going to accept this. It's it's unrealistic. So you have Medvedev saying what he said. You have Lavrov saying these things. So no ceasefire, no talks, because Russia's not going to agree to Zelensky's peace formula, and an open discussion about overthrowing the Ukrainian government by Medvedev and taking more land than Medvedev. But the only way you're going to depose a Nazi regime and retake originally Russian territories, as, Rush, as Medvedev says, the only way you're going to do that is if you take it all of it like you want historically russian land you have to take it you want to denazify ukraine demilitarize ukraine you have to take that you you have to at least take kiev and then you can begin denazifying ukraine uh because you have to take the head of their government if you want to do that and the only way that happens is if russia goes on the what the offensive and this is yet another thing that I speculated would eventually have to happen way back when the war first began. I made the case, and I've continued to make the case, uh, that Russia would have, they would have to conquer just about all of Ukraine in order for the war to end. I, I said this circumstance will push them to that. Uh, and I've made that case because when I looked at what Russia's stated war aims were, because they, they put it out there very publicly, Demilitarization of Ukraine, denazification of Ukraine, uh, and that's namely what I focused on. There was another, there was another uh, thing that they wanted, but I'm, I'm blanking on it at the moment. But specifically, the denazification and the demilitarization of Ukraine. Just looking at those two, because this is what I based my speculations off of anyway. Just looking at those, I, I said, well, if this is what, you, if this, if these are what your war aims are. Uh, I looked at it and I concluded that the only way you could achieve these goals would be either through the unconditional surrender of Ukraine, which hasn't happened and likely isn't going to happen, or the total conquest and occupation of Ukraine. Those are the only two ways you're going to achieve that because you, you can't take, uh, what, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk and then claim to be denazifying Ukraine. You, that No one would believe you. And honestly, you wouldn't be able to believe yourself if you said that. You would have to take over at least Kiev, which would mean marching halfway through Ukraine. You'd have to at least take the capital to even make the claim that you're denazifying Ukraine. 
And with regards to demilitarization, well, sure, you can achieve a lot of that on the battlefield, which they're doing right now. But ultimately, if you want to demilitarize it, you have to basically defeat them in the war and then impose that on them. But then you have to enforce that, which would mean effectively an occupation of the entire country, at least for a temporary period of time. So half or more of Ukraine would have to be taken by Russia in order for them to even theoretically achieve these stated aims, denazification, demilitarization. And needless to say, if you want to do that, you have to go on the offensive for that. And now that we are in a post-Ukraine offensive world, where Ukraine has exhausted their supply of heavy equipment like tanks and armored vehicles, just and they're rapidly running out of ammunition. And since we've given them so much without the production to back it up, we can't resupply them anymore. Not really, not with anything meaningful. So they're rapidly running out of ammunition and just about everything else. Now, as we go into the winter and the rainy seasons and the Russians are gonna sit there and continue to bombard Ukraine. And unfortunately, Ukraine continues to attack. And I hope that they're smart enough not to do that in the mud when it was bad enough, when the, the ground was sturdy underneath them. But we're, as we go into the, the rainy season and the winter, the attritional warfare will continue to grind away at Ukraine and we cannot replenish them anymore. And we talked about uh, the lack of replenishment when we discussed why a long war in Ukraine just isn't going to happen and why it's unrealistic as well. But we're looking at the inevitable on the horizon now because Ukraine is exhausted and they're only going to their situation can only deteriorate from this point on because we no longer have the ability to resupply them. NATO no longer has the ability to resupply them. So in that environment where they are now going to start to dwindle and dwindle more and more and the Russians have are just sitting there watching them fade away the inevitable starts to be seen on the horizon and that inevitable that inevitability i should say is the russian backbreaker offensive that i've talked about since well the winter of last year when i thought that they were, they were going to do a winter offensive they instead they took their time and now it looks like the backbreaker offensive is on the horizon. Almost two years of fighting, a depleted Ukrainian and NATO arsenal, a million men mobilized, and after all this time, fully trained now, or, or at the very least properly trained, and a Ukraine that's scraping the barrel for additional money and manpower. Zelensky's now going on another begging tour throughout uh, the West, and he walks away with chump change. All that, the writing is on the wall. The writing is on the wall. But the question now is very simple. Who will read it? You know we will, but will the Ukrainians, will the US read it? Will Europe read it? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my 
geopolitical podcast. The world's changing. The backbreaker offensive is coming. But no matter what happens, we will have fun watching that change together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, servus. Thank you.